0: Welcome to The Thoughtful Entrepreneur. I'm Josh Elledge, founder and CEO of upmyinfluence.com. We believe that every person has a unique message which can positively impact the world. Now, on this podcast, your host, veteran radio personality, Jennifer Longworth, encourages entrepreneurs to share not only their expertise, but their stories and their hearts. You're gonna love this show. You're gonna hear real stories from real people on The Thoughtful
1: Entrepreneur. So let's go. You're a thoughtful entrepreneur, be a thoughtful manager. So just stop and think before you make the promise. And then if you make a promise, write it down because now your reputation is is at stake. Your reputation is on the line with every promise that you make. So you need to be aware of the promises that you're making.
2: This is Jennifer Longworth and today's thoughtful entrepreneur is Bob Lee, an internationally recognized author, conference speaker and media commentator. His career includes 15 years as a senior leader with Great Place to Work Institute, during which he spoke at conferences and events throughout U.S., Europe, Middle East, Africa, and Asia, sharing his unique insights on how and why the world's best employers use great workplace cultures to drive competitive advantage. From conversations with hundreds of managers and employees around the world, Bob became intrigued by a simple question. Why, even in the very best workplaces, are there pockets of deep unhappiness, teams for whom the day-to-day workplace experience is very different from that of their colleagues elsewhere in the organization? Bob set out to understand exactly what the best managers were doing right that other managers were doing wrong. He studied feedback from almost 2 million employees in 80 countries around the world to better understand the manager attitudes and behaviors that have the greatest impact on how employees experience the workplace. The resulting work? Trust rules how the world's best managers create great places to work achieved the number one bestseller status in Amazon's international business category within two weeks of launch and has been published in 12 separate international editions. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you, Jennifer. So you are an author and I've had other authors on this show before too, and they call themselves authorpreneurs actually, because writing a book's not just about writing the book and letting it go. It's about a business as well so let's go back to what inspired you to write a book so how did you always want to be a writer
1: i think i probably did somewhere at the at the back of my mind but i've, I've been a writer as long as i've been in business because so much of what we do in business is writing anyway whether it's writing letters whether it's writing emails preparing brochures advertising content and so on so we're, we're effectively writing all the time and certainly, I, I did have a feeling that I would like to write the book at some stage. <laughs> um, but I, I'd never really found a compelling uh, topic to write about. And I suppose I was too busy doing other things to go looking for that topic. Right. Um, where where it came from was that I'd been working with a great place to work um, in Ireland and the UK. Originally, I, I had set up those businesses and great place to work are best known for publishing lists of the best companies to work for so in the us we publish with fortune magazine so so although that's what we're best known for what we're actually what our what what their purpose is really is to help organizations create better workplaces and the key to creating better workplaces is to build high trust relationships in those workplaces so high trust relationships between employees between employee and management and between employees and the owners of the company the senior execs so the organization uses a survey called a trust index which is 57 questions that every employee in participating companies completes and i got this idea that if i could work on that database which is about 2 million people's responses, typically a year's data is made up of 2 million people responding to that survey, uh, that it would be interesting to see what were the factors, the behaviors and attitudes of managers that had the biggest impact on the level of trust that they enjoyed with the people that worked for them. And what I expected to find, like I, I say that this isn't the book that I set out to write, because the book I set out to write, I expected would be about the differences in how we trust how people make a decision to trust so for example i expected that there would be a difference between male employees and female employees that male employees might be more transactional whereas female employees might be more reflective and maybe slower to trust um i thought there might be differences between generations that you know younger people may decide may take different factors into account i thought there might be differences by geography and by culture what i found was that there are essentially no differences Right across 2 million people from 85 countries, all genders, all demographics, there's really no difference. The factors that people use in coming to their decision, to trust or not to trust, are essentially the same. And therefore, obviously, I couldn't write a book about the differences, so (laughs) I decided to write a book about the similarities. And that's where trust rules came from.
2: Well, I am hearing this and going, Yeah, I probably would have had the same hypothesis as you that it would be different because people are different. So therefore, there must be differences in the way we trust, but it comes down to human nature, I guess you're discovering.
1: Yeah, that's right. And one one of the like it's it's not to say that the levels of trust are universally the same. You know, the, the, the levels of trust in some countries are a lot lower than in others. So culturally, there can be a lower propensity to trust or a lower willingness to trust. Ah. But the decisions that are taken in arriving at a level of trust are effectively the same. So for, for example, the most highly correlated behavior, the, the behavior that is crucial in building trust is keeping your promises. So if an employee, for every 20 employees who say that their manager keeps their promises, 19 of those would also say that it's a great place to work. For every twenty who say that their manager doesn't keep their promises, eighteen of them will say, "and it's not a great place to work." So there's a very, a very strong correlation. Now you may find it harder to get twenty people to agree with that statement in one country than in another. Okay, so there's that reluctance to trust, but the factor that they're making that decision on is the same.
2: Okay, well, that's that makes sense. So what are a couple of the other ones that you, that you discovered?
1: Okay, well th- there there are sixteen in in total, and okay. the first of them is one that. It's not based on the data, but it's actually just based on the common sense of everything else around it and a lot of the comments that that, that emerged. And that's to trust first, that from a manager's point of view, so, so if you think the book is written for managers as a way to set out the behaviours and attitudes, their behaviours and attitudes that impact on their people, so the relationship with their people. So the first rule that, that I've set out is trust first you've got to be the one to extend trust to your employees first. Now, a manager will typically say, well, I'll trust my people as soon as they show that they're deserving of my trust. But it doesn't really work that way because if both people hold back, trust can't be established. It's like any other relationship. That's a crucial thing, by the way, that there's no, there's nothing different about a work relationship than there is about the personal relationships that we all have. And one of the reasons that the book works well is because managers understand, or come to understand, that if they're capable of building trust relationships at home or in their spare time, whether it's in PTA associations or whatever whatever they do, if they're capable of building high trust relationships outside of work, then they're totally capable of doing it inside work, because it takes the same things. So going back to the issue of trust first, if an employee trusts their manager and the manager lets them down, they really have no power in that relationship. There's nothing that an employee can do except to walk away so if if you're my boss, I trust you and you let me down then i've I, I've no way to censure you for that. On the other hand, if you place your trust in me and I let you down, then you can extend less trust to me in the future. you can demote me you can sack me you, you you know you have the whole range all of the power is with you. And that's why for managers, we say, well, look, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to trust first. It's essentially like you're the adult. You've got to you've got to go first.
2: Right, right. Well, that makes sense.
1: So other rules, I suppose, would be um, so living with keeping your promises, obviously, is absolutely crucial. And one thing I'd say on that is that most managers say that they keep their promises and most employees say, yeah, well, managers do keep their big promises, but they don't keep the small ones. This is where I think there was real value in the research. The type of thing that people talk about when they say that managers don't keep their promises are things like when the manager says, I'll see, or let me think about it. Okay, so if I come to you with a brilliant idea and you think it's a ridiculous idea, you're my manager, and you say, "Mm, okay, Bob, that's interesting, let me have a think about that as far as you're concerned, you're probably closing off the conversation and you're saying you're, you're not going to hear anything more about this.
2: Right. Exactly.
1: But for me, I go home to my partner and Eileen says, so did you, did you say that to, to Jen? And I say, yeah, she seemed quite, quite keen. And she said, she's going to think about it. So, so I'm expecting that there's going to be something to close out, to close out that, um, <laughs> you know, give me, give me five minutes. I'll get back to you. All of these things are, are promises. If so, you know, the promise is in the ear of the beholder. So, it's a promise if the employee hears it as a promise. And the advice in the book is that because the book is very, very practical. It's very hands-on. And it's designed to say, look, th- you know, these are the things that may not be so obvious to you that actually may be undermining your at- your endeavors to build trust and work.
2: Now, I've had a boss who, who would say, I promise, trust me on this. I guarantee blah, 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 blah. Mm. Well, I don't work for that person anymore because what we- – there was no way he could deliver on some of these things. Like, sure. what? Why are you even telling us this? You can't deliver on that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah you know.
2: I no, know I don't trust you anymore. All right, bye. <laughs> it's,
1: interesting, it's interesting when you say that you know you have a manager who said trust me, because generally when people say trust me, I always think that has been an alarm bell that it's probably a good reason not to, you know, because in general people people who are who act in a trustworthy manner tend not to have to tell you that they do because their their behaviors yeah. set their reputation it's somebody saying to you that they would you know trust me I'll do it if if you if you know it's a ridiculous promise then they should and so so some of the advice that I that I give is under promise and over deliver so it's a cliche but it's right. not less true because of that i think that good managers often over promise because they want to be good managers so you ask me for something and i say yeah i'll get that for you by tomorrow afternoon but maybe if i'd asked you when do you need this for? You might have said, oh, any time by the end of the month is fine. So so often I think we put ourselves under pressure to deliver on tight, tight things that don't actually need to be that tight in the first place. And, and another one, Napoleon Bonaparte said that the best way to break less promises is to make less promises. Exactly. Although it sounds cynical, it's actually just to say, look, You're a thoughtful entrepreneur. Be a thoughtful manager. So just stop and think before you make the promise. And then, if you make a promise, write it down because now your reputation is is at stake. Your reputation is on the line with every promise that you make. So you need to be aware of the promises that you're making.
2: Now you have self published this book, and yet you've made it a success, and that's really cool because a lot of times we think of self publishing this book isn't going to go nowhere. So what what's been your secret of being able to sell? you know, over 50,000 copies?
1: I, w- I would say, yes, with all modesty, it has been successful. So we've sold about 55,000 copies now. It's in 10 international editions. So that's part, and I'll come back on, on what we did there. The secret, I think, is, first of all, to recognize the extraordinary opportunity that self-publishing offers. You know, th- there's been a revolution in the publishing industry that most people aren't yet aware of, because I I, I think there's still this sense that self-publishing is, you know, like it's it's like a history of people who lived on my street and you're going to sell five copies. Uh, it's nothing <laughs> at all like that. Like it's yeah. it's digital printing where if you go on Amazon and please do, if you go on Amazon to, <laughs> buy the, to buy the book, that book doesn't physically exist until you place the order. And when you place the order, a printing press somewhere in eight locations around the world wears into action, prints the book, prints the cover, binds it, puts it into a carton, and no human being touches that until you take that out of the carton. You're the first human being to touch the book. That's the revolution. In terms of cost, you're talking about at units of say 10 copies or more. If I, you know, if I order one copy, it costs maybe $15, maybe $16. But once I order 10 copies of the book, it's working out at about $4 delivered. And that is whether I, I order ten thousand or ten copies. So there isn't really a scale advantage, which means that you don't need to fill the front room of your house with three thousand copies of the book just to get it at, at a reasonable price. So that's the first thing that there's an extraordinary opportunity there. What I would say though is that you will squander the opportunity unless you treat it as an opportunity to publish a book as professional as any mainstream publisher will will do. So it needed an investment. I took a super editor who had recently gone freelance from one of the bigger publishing houses. And I worked with her to get the quality of the, of the book, right? Because, you know, cheap, cheap production counts for nothing if it's also cheap quality.
2: Yeah. I've discovered those by accident before. I'm like, Oh, this looks like a great book. Get it. It's self-published. And it's like, well, that's not worth the paper it's printed on. Yeah,
1: you see, that's it. And then also, like it needs to, you know, when we say don't judge a book by a cover, but everybody does. So, yeah, OK, we, we put a that's lot the of,
2: silliest saying ever. <laughs> yeah.
1: Kind of so we've we put a lot of, of work into getting the, the name right. So it sounded like a proper book because, you know, trust rules, how the world's best managers create great places to work there's a logic to it and it sounds like the sort of title that should make sense and i I can only illustrate that i could only illustrate that if i were to run through that maybe the 60 or 70 titles that i eliminated before i came (laughs) to that and then i got a really good designer to work on the design and the layout and so on so it was professionally done from the beginning and obviously we know that if you want to create a professional business then you need to invest at the right stages and that's that's what we did in terms of selling the book then you've got to approach it that no it's a very very busy market and nobody is going to buy the book unless you give them compelling reasons to do so so i worked very hard to get good praise quotes so this would be where i've sent maybe a hundred copies of the book to people that i don't know and some people that i do with a request that they read it and give a review very long drawn out process and particularly when you've written the book and you're itching to get it into into print and into circulation it's a bit like having a new baby and having to keep it f- away from everybody for four or five weeks while you while you get it dressed, you know that nobody gets to to, to see it because you've worked so hard to get the book and you just want to you want you basically want it off your desk, and yet you're now in this stage where you're waiting for people at their own pace to come back with their comments. I've done a lot of advertising on Amazon, figuring out what what works there, what are the keywords that that work, and so on. And then probably one thing that I was in a privileged position to do that worked especially well is that I've produced co-authored editions of the book in some markets. So, for example, there's a Mexico edition, which is in Spanish, and that's done in partnership with a colleague of mine in Mexico. So he's the co-author. He adapted the book for the Mexican market. But if you think of the rules from one to 16 as being unchanged, What he's done is he's adapted the introduction and he's adapted some of the conclusions, really because why this is important in Mexico is different to why it's important in Africa, for example. Right. So with that level of tailoring, it also then means that you've got somebody in the local market whose name means something and also who's available to promote the book because I can't be in Mexico If I'm going to be in Ireland or in Canada or the US or wherever else promoting the book. So with those 10 international editions, it means that I've got 10 people who are as proud of the book as I am and are as qualified to talk about the content of the book as I am. And that then has allowed us to leverage that to create workshops, which are incredibly popular. And in fact, they change the whole financial model because the money from the book becomes less relevant in the context of a workshop attended by 50 people where each of them is getting a copy of the book, but the revenue is really being generated by their attendance at the workshop. It's things like that that have made the difference. And it's doing something every day to promote the book, because the moment that you stop promoting it is the the moment it'll stop selling.
2: And I like this additional revenue stream idea, because in business, if you're only doing one thing, you're stuck. If that with that one thing, as far as that one thing will take you, and with books, they, you know, you don't make a ton of money unless you sell a ton of books. So the, the profit margin on a workshop giving away a book is way bigger than just selling the book on its own. So, what inspired you to to start the workshops? Did it just kind of happen organically, or is the workshop centered around the content of the
1: book? It's it's around the content of the book, but it's much it's it's very much around exploring your own attitudes. So I've developed a series of exercises where participants in the workshop, I suppose effectively they internalize the the content. So one part of it is we've got a deck of 16 cards and the rule each card contains a rule. So at tables of 6 or 7 people, they deal the cards out and they take it in turns to talk about why this matters. So basically if the rule is let's say keep your promises, Um, Or let's say, help your employees achieve work-life balance. So the person who gets that card gets to say whether or not they feel it does impact on trust and why that is the case. And there's another way of using those cards, which is to describe the behaviors that a manager would be exhibiting if they were observing this rule what this does is in small groups it gets people as i say to internalize it to think actually yeah these these things do work because if at the end of the workshop if somebody can have a realization that there's something small that i've been doing that i could do differently we encourage them try that for 30 days don't try to change the world just try one single thing it might be just write down every promise that you make and you you know yourself that's how you change your behavior and If we make that impact, then managers go back with a changed perspective on the workplace. So just as a very quick example, I'm just back from Toronto, where I was running workshops with Great Place to Work in Canada. And at one of the sessions, which was attended by maybe 35 people, we've produced sales from that one session of, I'm just in quick mental arithmetic here, about 400 copies Wow. So, you know, one person goes, goes back to a small business employing 150 people and she places an order for 70 copies of the book. So that's how it, how it works. But
2: So they're buying them for their managers.
1: Exactly. Yeah. They,
2: they come right. to your workshop, they go, oh my gosh, my people need to hear this. And they take it back to them. They buy more copies of your book. And so it grows.
1: Yeah, because like I'm, I'm, I'm doing this interview with you from my, my home office, my, my, let's call it my, glorified library it's actually a, a front bedroom but it is <laughs> very good but it's got shelves like a library so I'm looking at all of the books that, that I have and one of the things that struck me when I was writing this writing the book was that there at least half of the books on my shelves I've never actually read so these are books that I've, I've been inspired to buy because I recognized that there was a need in me that the book blurb promised to address so I've bought all these books and I haven't I haven't read them. So that was one of the things that I. <laughs> that's, that's
2: that's very familiar. <laughs>
1: so why is that? Why is that? So one of the things is well, the books are huge. Like 242 pages is seems to be a sort of a standard for a business book. And when I was uh, discussing with with the publisher, I actually had a publishing contract offered for the book, but I wasn't happy with the the money side of it, which was I would get a dollar for every copy that was sold, and that didn't seem very fair. But also, they wanted 242 pages. They wanted to publish hardback, first of all. And they wanted lots of examples and name checks from the likes of Google, Yahoo, Facebook, and so on. You know, the high-tech, the sexy companies. So the difficulty with that is that I felt, well, if, if I've bought these books and I haven't read them, then you know, nobody has gained from that. Okay, the publisher has, has got a few, a few dollars from me. But I haven't learned anything. I've actually even got books that I've bought executive summaries of. To try to, to try to get the gist of, of what's in the book. So what I did was I decided, no, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to write a paperback. I'm going to have it short and to the point. So I wrote about 80,000 words, but published 27,000 words. It's a small book. And I think that's one of the things that people, that, I think that's one of the reasons that managers are buying it for other managers in their company, because it's an inviting book. It's like, it's like one of those little box panels on a, in a magazine. You know the way your eye is drawn to the little things rather than the big, long article. And I think, that, I think there's that sense about it, that this is something that people can read. It takes about an hour, an hour and a quarter. And to me, there's no point in writing a book if, if it doesn't change anybody's behavior, because why have you spent all that time? What's it all been for if it doesn't help people to do something better and differently?
2: You basically just described the most recent book that I actually read and finished. (laughs) It was a self-published book with a great cover that was practical, and I got it read in an hour, an hour and a half. You know, I don't, I'm like, oh, I don't read. Well, it's because the books are 242 pages long. And I go, I don't have time for that. But these easy, quick reads, then I'm going to learn something. I'll probably highlight or write notes in, it sounds like, based on your book. You know, it's like, oh, underline this one, underline that one. Got to do that. Even, you know, write the little rules on note cards and stick them around my room or something. So this sounds like a very practical, usable book that I would actually read. (laughs) instead of just sticking yeah the short ones yeah no problem and i never considered the magazine example you just said but yeah totally i always read the short stuff first what are you talking
1: about it's like yeah it's like you have to build yourself up psychologically to read the three-page article so let me read this little snippet first certainly that's what i do
2: so what advice do you have for the thoughtful entrepreneur who is listening
1: i've been in business for about 30 years and i would say the one thing that I'm glad that I had a natural predisposition to do was to spend money on the things that were important to spend money on, which meant not spending it on the things that were unimportant. Now that might sound like very obvious advice, but I have mentored various up and coming entrepreneurs. And one of the things that I find really frustrating is the entrepreneur who wants to go for super growth, but without investing the appropriate amount of money so let's say you're trying to to, if you're trying to bootstrap everything in your business it's not necessarily a good idea i think you know bootstrap where you need to bootstrap but where you need to bring professional support on board do it for example i could have designed the cover myself i'm reasonably artistic i'm reasonably creative but there's a huge difference between or sorry if you want to know the difference between great design and good design just look at the two of them side by side and there's no comparison Good Design is what any of us can do, but great design is what a good graphic designer can do. So, so, it's that idea of spending when appropriate and that the flip side of that. So, in any business that I've run, I've always emphasized to my team you don't throw paper clips away, you reuse an envelope. If you're putting, if you know, if, you, if you're leaving something at reception for somebody, they're not going to look at how clean the envelope is, you know, if it's, if it's a key to an outshed or something like that. So, if there's an envelope that isn't destroyed, recycle it paper clips they come in 100 per box they don't come free so if you don't <laughs> spend money on paper clips you've got money to spend on something else at some other point because the one you know we we have limited control over the money that comes into our business but we have total control over what we do with that money when you're managing a team it's a thin line where you're saying to them please don't throw out paper clips please don't use paper clips unnecessarily because it sounds like you're maybe the the, the Scroogiest scrooge of all <laughs> however if you emphasize the link between if we don't spend money that we don't have to so that we do have money to spend on the things that we really want to and that that obviously includes things that benefit the team as well you know like that free coffee in the in 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 the break room can be funded by the money that's saved on the paper clips and the compliment slips and the envelopes so so that's really where, where where i would go it's like look after the little things and you know the, the cents and let the dollars look after themselves
2: yeah perfect So how could people find out more about you and how can we get this amazing book?
1: Okay, well, thank you for the opportunity to plug the amazing book, Jen. What I would say, first of all, the simplest place is go to to Amazon or any of the online retailers. Um, I'm in the process of finishing the Audible version of the book. Yay!
2: Are you reading it?
1: Yes, I am. Oh, sweet. I'm totally in. Thank you. Yeah, I expect to have that done uh in within the next two weeks. Um Sweet. so that's that's the, the plan. But the book is available in, in all formats, paper and kindle and all, all ebook formats on Amazon. No, um, but I want
2: to just listen to you talk. I'm gonna listen to this over and over and over.
1: Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank
2: you. This Kentucky well, girl's like, ooh, Irish accent,
1: that's all awesome. that. Oh, yeah. The only thing is that that you don't get that doesn't get you anywhere in Ireland. <laughs> well,
2: no, not in Ireland. But, you but, know,
1: but no, thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and then then really probably the best way, although there is a, a website trust rules, to be honest, I would say the best way to connect with me and I would encourage everybody to, to do so is through LinkedIn. Um, I'm quite active on LinkedIn and I share quite a bit of, of stuff there. And obviously that's a way to to have one on one interactions as well. If anybody has any questions or needs to know more or wants any advice, best thing, LinkedIn, Bob Lee, Trust Rules, that will definitely get me. And I respond to everything that comes in.
2: Trust Rules, how the world's best managers create great places to work. Author Bob Lee, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Jen. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The
0: Thoughtful Entrepreneur. If you are a thoughtful entrepreneur who would like to be a media celebrity and be on our show, please visit upmyinfluence.com slash guest and attend my next live webinar where I'll reveal how to get more respect from influencers and media so that you can get more sales and traffic. Now, please do us a favor. If you like the guest that was just interviewed, would you share this episode on social media? And in your podcast player right now, Please give us a thumbs up or a rating and review. We promise to read it all and take action. We believe that every person has a message that can positively impact the world. Your feedback helps us fulfill our mission to help create more media celebrities. Make sure to hit subscribe, binge listen to our previous episodes, and we'll send you the next episode automatically. Thanks for listening and thank you for being a part of the Thoughtful Entrepreneur Revolution.